do you, Baron Frankenstein, take this woman to be your bride? Do you promise to haunt her with old horror movies, toys, and comics? Yes, I want friend. Woman. Friend. And you, Baroness, do you take this man beast to be your lawfully bound husband? Do you promise to endure hours of unimaginable torture as he rambles about monster movies and long-dead actors? Close enough. Then by the power invested in me by Count Alucard, I now pronounce you supermates. supermates. You may bite or kiss the bride. Show, so I can try to smooch you while the lights are low But you won't curdle to a story of romance There's only one way I've got a chance It takes the Batman, Wolfman, Frankenstein or Dracula To put her in the mood for love It takes the cat, girl, dog, boy, creature from the Black Lagoon To make her feel like making love It takes a monster from outer space to make my baby She can hear somebody scream Good evening and welcome to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. I am Baron Franklinstein. And I am the innocent Cindy Franklin. <laughs> Boy, shit. <laughs> oh, that's cold, dude. <laughs> Uh, we're just having a little fun. So, uh, welcome to Supermates. This is episode 60, and this is part one of this year's House of Frankenstein series. In case you're new to the show, each September and October, we cover a classic horror movie and a comic book featuring a superhero versus a classic-style movie monster. Now, we do this in September and October, which means there's four episodes, and yes, it's a little early to be going Halloween, but we love Halloween and we don't care. So <laughs> we, we, the more the merrier. So, you know, we have, we usually try to balance what we, what we're covering with a good mix of like different monster characters and, and we're big fans of the Universal Monsters and the Hammer films. So it tends to be heavy in Universal and Hammer and we've been following the trials and tribulations of everyone's favorite lycanthrope, Lawrence Stewart Talbot, a.k.a. The Wolfman, as played by Lon Chaney Jr., from his titular debut film Onward. So the first year we covered The Wolfman, last year we covered Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. So naturally we have to cover the movie that we take our very series name from. That would be The House of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. So this was the first of the true Monster Rally pictures, because two monsters make a team-up or a crossover, it's not a rally. It's in the Monster Union Handbook, but mm. you have to have at least three monsters to constitute a rally. Oh, okay. So just... Kind of yeah. like a quorum in a meeting. Right, exactly. You know. Exactly, yeah. So, so we'll just jump right into it. So House of Frankenstein... And I'm going to have, I'm probably going to end up saying House of Franklinstein a lot in this one. I'm going to try to say it right. The movie House of Frankenstein was released December 1st, 1944. As we always point out, 
Very few of these were ever released around Halloween. It's the Christmas feel-good movie of the year. That's right. So, you know. It was directed by Earl C. Kenton with a screenplay by Edward T. Lowe Jr. and a story by Kurt Siodmak. Boris Karloff played Dr. Gustav Neiman. Lon Chaney Jr., of course, played Larry Talbot, a.k.a. the Wolfman. J. Carroll Nash played Daniel. John Carradine, Dracula or Baron Latos. Or is it Baron Latos? Is he Latos? Lotos, I can't remember. Uh, Anne Gwynn played Rita Hussman. Peter Coe was Carl Hussman. Lionel Atwell as Inspector Arns. George Zuko as Professor Bruno Lampini. Elena Verdugo as Alonka. Sig Ruman as Burgermeister Hussman. Glenn Strange as the Frankenstein Monster. Michael Mark as Strauss. And Frank Riker as Ullman. <laughs> On a stormy night, a traveling show carriage passes an asylum for the criminally insane nestled deep in the woods. Inside, a mad doctor named Neiman assaults a guard for a large piece of chalk. Now, will you give me my chalk? Try that again and I'll put you in solitary confinement. You would be Frankenstein. Don't profane his name with your dirty lips. He was a genius in whose footsteps I will follow when I get out of here. When you get out. If I have anything to say about it, you'll never get out. But I will. In his cell, Neiman has drawn diagrams of how he transferred the brain of a man into the body of a dog. Neiman espouses the genius of his hero, Dr. Henry Frankenstein. His cellmate, the hunchbacked Daniel, listens, enraptured at the idea that Neiman's medical genius could give him a new, untwisted body. Suddenly, lightning strikes the old prison and destroys the outer wall, freeing Neiman and Daniel. They escape into the night and come upon the traveling carriage stuck in the mud. They offer the owner a hand, and soon they are on the road with the traveling show, claiming to be merchants who had been held prisoner by kidnappers. Showman Professor Bruno Lampini relates how he came to possess his collection of famous horrors, including the skeleton of Dracula himself, left inert by a stake in his non-existent heart. Neiman is particularly interested in Dracula, as he and Lampini trade notes on vampire lore. I have a collection of the world's most astounding horrors. When I exhibit them, what do I get? Doubts, jeers, cries of fake, fake. Do you expect your patrons to believe that the skeleton you show them is really that of Count Dracula? I, Lampini, took it, pardon me, borrowed it, from the cellar of Dracula's castle in the Carpathian Mountains. With my own two hands, I spread upon the floor of its coffin a layer of soil taken from its birthplace, so that by proxy, shall we say, the skeleton of his earthbound spirit might lie at peace within his grave. Until the withdrawal of the wooden stake from its heart set Dracula free again to satisfy his unholy appetite for blood. At night, the giant bat would seek its victims. But before sunrise, return to the safety of his coffin. Aye, a single ray of sunlight falling upon a vampire would make him helpless. Lampini's guest asks if he ever visits Vesaria, and the professor reports the town isn't interested in additional horrors, 
having dealt with the mad experiments of a certain Dr. Neiman years ago. Neiman learns his old enemy, Burgermeister Hussman, is now the mayor of Regalburg, and when he finds out Professor Lampini refuses to go there, he has Daniel murder him and his driver. Neiman and Daniel assume the identities of Lampini and his driver and head to Regalburg on a mission of vengeance against those who turn Neiman in, Strauss, Ullman, and Hussman. While the deadly duo arrive in town, Hussman is entertaining his friend, Inspector Arns, and visiting grandson Carl and his new bride, Rita. Rita suggests they visit Lampini's traveling horror show. There, Neiman, as Lampini, introduces the crowd to Dracula's coffin and corpse. Rita is frightened, but Hussman is incredulous. He notes that Lampini seems familiar, but is not the same Lampini who he ran out of town a few years before. Neiman claims that he is Lampini's brother, and Daniel closes the show curtain. Neiman angrily watches his prey walk away and then pulls the stake from Dracula's skeletal chest. Tissue and flesh reform and the Prince of Darkness breathes again. Neiman is no dummy and threatens to send Dracula back to his limbo if he attacks him. He offers him a bargain. He'll take care of his precious native soil if the vampire does him a favor. Drop the stick from your hand. Drop it. But if you move, I'll send your soul back to the limbo of eternal waiting. Do as I ask, and I will serve you. I will protect the earth upon which you lie, so that before sunrise, your coffin will always be ready for you. For that, I will do whatever you wish. As the husbands walk home, they are given a carriage ride by Baron Latos, who unbeknownst to them is the reanimated skeleton they saw only a short time ago. Herr Hussman invites the Baron back to his home for some of his own wine. Hours later, old Hussman is passed out and Carl goes to retrieve another bottle. This gives Dracula the time he needs to mesmerize Rita. You admire my ring? When I look at it, I see glimpses of a strange world. A world of people who are dead and yet alive. It is the place from which I've just returned. It frightens me. Well, it will drive away your fears. It's too large. It will become smaller. No. I'm afraid. Take it back. the bond that links us together. I see your world more clearly now. I'm no longer afraid. I will come for you before the dawn. Making his goodbyes, Dracula skulks around the other side of the house, where a reawakened Hussman discovers just who the new Lampini was, Dr. Neiman. He never gets the chance to tell anyone as Dracula enters his study and puts the old man into a trance. He then transforms into a bat and attacks him.
Carl is disturbed by Rita's strange obsession with living death and notices the ring on her finger with the Dracula crest, like the coffin they saw before. Rita faints, but when Carl runs for help from his grandfather, he finds the grandfather dead. Carl reports this to Inspector Arns and then finds Dracula making off with Rita. And arriving Arns and his men join Carl in chasing after Dracula's carriage through the countryside. Daniel alerts Nehemiah to the approaching police and the two take off, only to soon realize they're chasing Dracula instead. Proving that there's no honor among ghouls, Neiman orders Daniel to throw Dracula's precious coffin overboard as the horrified Count watches on. He leaps from his crashing carriage and makes his way to his coffin, only to have the deadly rays of the sunrise blast him. He falls onto his coffin in pain, desperately trying to make it inside. Inspector Arns witnesses the vampire's body return to its skeletal form, while Carl retrieves a dazed but alive Rita. The Dracula ring slips from her finger, and the two lovers embrace. Nehemiah and Daniel ride off into the night. Their next stop is the village of Frankenstein itself. Daniel is instantly smitten by the dancing gypsy girl named Ilanka. The police arrive and run both the gypsies and Lampini's show off. The inspector informs Nehemiah that the village has no further interest in horrors, having been plagued by Henry Frankenstein's monster and the Wolfman, who perished when the ruins of Castle Dracula were further destroyed in a flood years ago. As Neiman prepares to pull out of town, Daniel spots Alonka being whipped by the head of the gypsies. He nearly strangles the man to death and then turns the whip on him. Neiman allows Daniel to take the unconscious Alonka with him, just to keep him quiet, and they race off in the wagon. They don't go far, camping near the castle. When Alonka comes to, Daniel brings her tea. Grateful to her savior, she is rather flirtatious with the eager Daniel, until she sees his hunchback. Visibly repulsed, she still pledges to talk to Daniel while he drives the carriage. You're pretty. You're afraid of me, aren't you? Afraid of you? If you weren't, you'd come up here where I could see you better. Neiman and Daniel then explore the ruins of the castle, and Daniel falls into an ice cavern beneath the crumbling structure. There they find the frozen but preserved bodies of both Frankenstein's monster and the Wolfman. Hoping they will be able to locate Frankenstein's records, they set up fires to thaw them out. As the Wolfman's body is freed, it returns to its human form, and a very confused Larry Talbot confronts Neiman, as we get a nice recap in case anyone missed Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Who are you? Why have you freed me from the ice that imprisoned the beast that lived within me? Why? Perhaps to help you, Mr. Talbot. No earthly power can help those that are marked by the sign of the pentagram. You came here to ask Frankenstein for help, didn't you? Yes, but I was too late. He was dead. I wanted to die, too. Nevertheless, when Dr. Mannering trailed you here from England, you asked him for help. I did, but he became more interested in the monster than he was in me. 
When the villagers learned that he had brought the monster back to life, they blew up the dam. Whose frozen waters have held you here all these years. And now you've brought me back to a life of misery. With each full moon, I turn into a werewolf. I kill. I want to die. Only death can bring me release. You don't have to die, my boy. You're wrong. I can help you. How? How can you help me? I, too, am a doctor. A scientist like Frankenstein. Do you know where he kept his records? I think so. Show me those records, and I'll build a new brain for you. I'll lift this curse from you forever. Larry finds Frankenstein's notebook, and soon the group, including the comatose body of the monster, are off to Neiman's home in Viseria. Daniel is quite upset when he learns Larry is to drive the carriage while he helps Neiman care for the monster's damaged body. On the road, Ilanka wakes up and is surprised to find Larry in the driver's seat. She's quickly enamored of the mysterious and sullen Larry, who doesn't know quite what to make of her. <laughs> Daniel, you got bugs? You're not Daniel. No, Daniel's back with the doctor. Who are you? Just the driver. Are you going to be Sarah with us? Yes. I promised Daniel I'd keep him company while he drove. I'll talk to you if you want me to. My name's Alanka. What's yours? Lawrence. Do they call you Larry? They used to. As they travel, Daniel is distraught over how Alonka works to break down Larry's emotional walls. When they arrive at Neiman's abandoned lab in Viseria, they find it dusty and worn, but not unusable, and work to prepare it for his experiments. When everything is ready, Neiman gives the monster a steam bath on a slab, trying to repair his tissues. Larry is pretty honked off that Neiman isn't seeing to his needs first, as a full moon is set to rise that night. Daniel wants to know why he can't have Larry's strong body. Neiman is having none of it. His revenge on his old friends, Ullman and Strauss, come first. Him and Daniel abduct the two men, and then the mad doctor relates his rather convoluted plans for them. Don't kill me, don't. Kill my trusted old assistant? Why, no. I'm going to repay you for betraying me. I'm going to give that brain of yours a new home in the skull of the Frankenstein monster. As for you, Strauss, I'm going to give you the brain of the Wolfman, so that all your waking hours will be spent in untold agony, <laughs> awaiting the full of the moon, which will change you into a werewolf. Neiman's revenge results in two brains resting in jars labeled Ullman and Strauss. Daniel still wants Talbot's body, but Neiman has other plans. He wants to place the monster's brain in Larry's body so that he can add and subtract to it as he wishes while he experiments. Alonka then comes looking for Larry, who points out how she used to talk to him, but now only has time for Talbot. Alonka admits she loves Larry and wants to help him with the mysterious trouble he's in. Daniel tells her exactly what the trouble is, revealing that Larry is a werewolf. Alonka won't believe it and destroys what little hope Daniel has as she storms out. What's the matter? Don't you like Larry? You used to smile at me sometimes. The 
before he joined us. Why, Daniel, I believe you're jealous. You love him, don't you? He's in some kind of trouble, I think. I want to help him. You do love him. But he doesn't know it. It wouldn't make any difference to him if he did. Why not? Why wouldn't it make any difference to him? Do you see that? It's a star. A five-pointed star. The pentagram. The pentagram. The sign of the beast. Even a man who's pure in heart and says his prayers by night. May become a werewolf when the wolf pain blooms and the moon is full and bright. He's a werewolf. Oh, no. No, not him. Not Larry. You're lying. You're lying no. to me. No, I'm trying to protect you. Stay away from him. When the moon is full again, he'll turn. And he'll kill. He'll kill. I don't believe you. You're making it all up. Because you're jealous. I hate you. You're mean. And you're ugly. Frustrated, Daniel takes out his anger by whipping the barely conscious monster who is strapped to a lab table. As the full moon rises, Larry succumbs to his curse, and the Wolfman is on the prowl once more. At the local pub in Viseria, the inspector and burgermeister learn of the missing Ullman and Strauss. They are also alerted to the dead body found in the woods with its throat ripped out. Skipping any pretense, they immediately think, werewolf. They organize an angry mob to search for him. The next day, apparently having heard of the murder, Ilanka confronts Larry, who admits to his cursed existence. He warns her he could even kill her in his feral state. He tells her that there is only one way to ensure a werewolf's ultimate demise. And a werewolf doesn't just die, he must be killed. Killed by a silver bullet. Fired by the hand of one who loves him enough to understand. He must be killed. Killed by a silver bullet. Ilanka fashions a silver bullet from her necklace and finds an old pistol, while Neiman and Daniel power up the dormant monster. Larry comes in and cuts through the crap. Out of patience, he begins to throttle the mad doctor who manages to convince him he's still his only hope. Larry storms out while the monster continues to absorb the life-giving electricity. The light show is noticed by two of the villagers searching for the wolfman. They inform the rest of the mob who head toward Neiman. Neiman tells Daniel to fetch Talbot as he's ready for him. Alonka sneaks around Larry's room prepared to shoot him, but she can't bring herself to do it. Just then, the moon's rays strike Larry and he wolfs out once more. With savage fury, he bursts through the outer door past Alonka, who chases after him. The wolfman turns and savagely attacks her, but she still manages to shoot him. The creature falls and reverts back to Larry as he perishes, while a wounded and dying Alonka crawls toward him. Daniel finds the lifeless body of the woman he loved and takes it to Neiman, hoping he can help her. When the doctor isn't able to bring her back, Daniel turns on his master. The only thing I ever loved. 
It wouldn't have happened if you kept faith with me. I served you well, Master. Remember Lampini, Strauss, Ullman? Now you are going to join them. Seeing his benefactor in trouble, the monster frees himself from the slab and hurls Daniel's body through the lab skylight. The torch-welding mob finds his shattered body below and makes their way inside, only to find the monster carrying Dr. Neiman. They chase after the fleeing creature and with fire force him back into the bog. A barely conscious Neiman warns the monster away from the bog's quicksand, but the simple-minded creature doesn't listen. The two sink into the sandy waters as we fade to black. Don't go this way! Quicksands! Quicksands! Not this way! Quicksands! Not that way! Quicksands! Quicksands! Okay, the working title for this film was apparently The Devil's Brood, and that's probably actually a more fitting title, but it doesn't have the same marketable ring to it. You know, right. it didn't have the name Frankenstein in it. You know, as far as House of Frankenstein goes, very little action takes place in Frankenstein's former home, and this is the first Universal picture where there is actually no character named Frankenstein. True. There was true. either Henry or one of his sons or. In the last movie, the daughter, mm -hmm. uh, the granddaughter of Henry Frankenstein. So there's no actual Frankenstein in the film if you don't count the monster. Universal had actually planned to bring in Chorus the Mummy for this film, but decided against it due to budget restrictions. And I think it would have been interesting to see if they had had Chorus in the movie, would he have been played by Lon Chaney? Because he played... Right, Both right. of them at that time, you know. He played the mummy, Karis the Mummy, in three movies. So he he hated that character. So if he had to choose between the both the two of them, he would have picked the Wolfman, Wolf which he yeah. loved to play. So, uh, But, you know, they might have tried. They were originally going to try to have him play both, and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And since some of these monsters never meet one another, he might have been able to. You know? Yeah, that's true, depending on how things worked out. Right. Now, according to a post on IMDb, and I have not read this anywhere else, but according to a post on IMDb, Bela Lugosi was originally set to reprise his role as Dracula, but production had to wait on Boris Karloff to be on a break from Broadway's Arsenic and Old Lace. By the time Karloff was available, Lugosi was not, as he was appearing in an off-Broadway version of Arsenic and Old Lace, playing the same character Karloff played. That is weird. <laughs> yeah. That is so weird. And it's just another if that's true, it's just another one of those where Lugosi, you know, going, lost yeah. out to uh Karloff. You know, it's not as bad as what you see in Ed Wood apparently. No. You know, they they over dramatized that, but it's still you can't help but think of it when you you think of him cussing out Karloff and Ed Wood. Um Earl C. Kenton, who was the director of this, had previously directed Ghost of Frankenstein, the fourth film in the Frankenstein series, and the only one to star Lon Chaney as the monster. And Lionel Atwell was also in the cast of that movie, but Lionel Atwell's in like almost nearly every Universal movie. So. Some way, somehow. Yeah, and usually playing some kind of inspector. Now this one, he doesn't have the wooden arm. Right, right. You know, which is unfortunate because. But then it's probably better because I can't think of him without thinking of Kenneth Mars from you know, Frankenstein. Frankenstein. <laughs> to the Lumbion. Anyway, uh, 
Anyway. Now, the story was written by Kurt Siodmak, continuing the story of his Wolfman creation from the first film. Mm -hmm. So he wrote the other two Wolfman starring movies. Edward T. Lowe, the other writer, had worked on the story for Lon Chaney Sr.'s version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame for Universal, which explains a very important subplot here. Right. Very familiar. The marketing for this film advertised five monsters, including the obvious three, a mad doctor in Neiman, and a hunchback, which is not very, very PC. Very nice. Yeah, no. not very PC, you know, but different times. Now, getting into the movie itself, you got to wonder, why wouldn't the guard punish Neiman for strangling him? I'm like, what the crap? <laughs> yeah. But then you've got, you know, if you have a powerful person, you know... They're in prison, but then maybe the guard thought, you know, when he gets out of here, is he going to take it out on me? Well, you know, because you don't know how long he was in there for. Yeah, and I mean, he's, you know, he has a pretty ghoulish reputation, obviously. Because how many times have you heard about mob bosses living the life of Riley when they're in prison? That's true. Yeah. So, you know. I just watched Daredevil season two, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> also, I have to wonder, is Peter Capaldi's doctor's real name Neiman? Because they both are obsessed with chalk. <laughs> And they both have angry eyebrows. <laughs> yeah. Very cross. Very cross. Uh, speaking of which, Karloff looks really creepy with that disheveled hair and and crazy beard. I, you know, you you. I believe that he's capable of just about anything. Mm -hmm. Now, J. Carroll Nash, who plays Daniel, was a respected character actor who sometimes slummed it in productions far beneath him including the 1943 Batman movie serial where he played the main antagonist, Dr. Daka. Now, he would bring a performance that would elevate what he was in, including in that movie, because that was a very propaganda-fueled Japanese stereotype for the time. Right. And it could be a very awful, cringe-worthy role, but he makes it into something more than what it is. And he's actually, other than the music, he's the best thing about that movie serial. Because the Batman movie serials were really bad. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and I'm a huge Batman fan, obviously, but I can I, I like the Superman movie serials. I, and, you know, despite the, you know, he turns into a cartoon when he flies, right. but Kirk Allen's got an exuberant, he gives an exuberant performance, mm -hmm. and he's got no way, he's got no way. And he smiles! He smiles. <laughs> he smiles a lot, yeah. He's happy in his work as Superman, yes. Yeah. And it's got Noel Neal, you know, and and uh, I but uh, the Batman movie serials just I don't know they just yeah but anyway now Nash's last film released shortly before his death was Dracula versus Frankenstein the infamous one with uh, what was his name it was like uh, I can't think of the guy the guy that played Dracula is like something Xander Xander something Zarkov or something I can't think of the guy's name. But he had a perm. He had like a Mike Brady perm as Dracula. It was in the 70s. Oh, okay. And the Frankenstein monster looked like he had a shoebox puttied onto his head. Uh, but it had J. Carroll Nash. That was his last film. It also had Lon Chaney Jr., and that was his last film. So these two guys ended up making their last films together. together. So it's kind of interesting. Now here's something that really always got me. Neiman says his brother worked for Frankenstein. Yeah. Now, from what we saw in the movies, you have to. Was it Fritz from the first movie? Was it Carl from the second movie from Bride of Frankenstein? Was it Igor? Because you know uh, Bela Lugosi. 
because uh, and Dwight Fry had played Fritz and Carl, two different characters. But if it was Igor, as played by Bela Lugosi, technically he's trying to revive his own brother's brain because Igor had his brain put into the monster's body at the end of Ghost of Frankenstein, where all this brain-swapping nonsense began. Right. So, and obviously last movie, Lugosi played the monster because they had planned on having him talk with Igor's voice. And then they cut out all this dialogue, as we mentioned last right. time. So, everybody seems to forget that Igor's brain's in that monster. And they just think it's still the same character as Karloff's monster, but it's it's not. I mean, it's the same body, but it's a different, different brain. <laughs> Which, when we get on down to this, the brain-swapping thing, I'm going to tell you my theory about this. Okay, okay. And yes, that lightning strike was very convenient, but hey, it's a fantastical story. It happens. So. Well, you know. Now, George Zuko plays Professor Lampini, the real one, and he's barely recognizable with that big bushy mustache. He's a constant fixture in 40s horror films, lots of universals, particularly the Karis Mummy series. He's always the high priestess of of Arkham or Ar whatever. They keep renaming the, the whatever it is that keeps reviving him with the, the tea leaves, you know, so... Now, did you notice that there's a couple of moments in this film that make you think it may have once been in 3D? Because, like, when Daniel's going to strangle Lampini, you know, they've got Nash, like, his hands come directly at the camera. And then... At the, I don't think it was necessary. Oh, no, it wasn't. This was 10 years too early. Yeah. But if you didn't know better, you'd think... Uh, it's like a move In any movie you see now, it's like, oh, that was for the 3D part. part yeah. You know, because I very rarely... Watch the 3D version. Oh, it makes me sick, so we just don't go to them. It doesn't really bother me, but very few of them have any benefit where it comes to 3D. No, especially if it's live action. Now, yeah. animated... Animated 3D works pretty but well. But for whatever reason, it it just... Unless we're sitting in the just right place in the theater, you know, it just makes me sick. Yeah. In my stomach. Yeah. But there's the scene with Daniel, and then at the end, the Burgermeister in Viseria takes the torch right at the camera as he's coming at the monster. Yeah. And it just makes you think, 3D! <laughs> it's like in that uh, Vincent Price movie, the um, the uh, Wax Museum movie, where, uh, I think of the exact title, but there's literally a guy outside the the Wax Museum like like doing a yo-yo at the camera because it was originally in 3D. <laughs> it's like, we've got 3D! Check it out! <laughs> That's actually a good movie otherwise, but it's just kind of weird. Of course, a hunchback assistant to a mad scientist goes back to Fritz in the first Frankenstein film. But according to Universal historian Michael Mallory, who wrote the Universal Monsters book that we often reference, Daniel is the first hunchback assistant to say, Yes, master. So there you go. There you go. So there's lots of stereotypes that are, are, are bits of monster lore that are established in this movie that we'll get to. Now, I don't know about you, but... This movie has even more of a fairy tale like atmosphere than some of the other Universal movies, and I think part of it's because we spend quite a bit of time in the countryside, mm -hmm. you know, with them in the in the wagon, in the you know, and 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 your Dracula's carriage. Later, you see a lot of of, uh, of of countryside, and you really can't say what time period this is because. In the country, life would have moved at a slower pace right. anyway. So. Now, in The Wolfman, Larry first rides up in a car. Right. But that's one of the few modern vehicles mm -hmm. we see in the whole Universal Monster series. 
at, at every other times it's horse-drawn carriages mm-hmm. and wagons and things. So now we meet the Hussmans, and this is a a very brief subplot in the grand scheme of things. Oh yeah, it almost feels like its own mini film. I almost wonder if it wasn't like they were shown a script for this, and they're like, "Well, that's not enough for a full movie. Here, let's tack it onto this and make it a monster rally." Right. Well, you know? maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That. It, who knows? They. You know, nothing ever goes away in in Hollywood. It's right. always recycled. Now, actress Anne Gwynn, who plays Rita, was a contract player for Universal. She was in several of their movies, and and in uh, one of the um, uh, Inner Sanctum movies with Lon Chaney Jr. And she was also one of World War II's most popular pinup girls. She is also the mother-in-law of actor Robert Pine, who was the Sarge from Chips and who had a Mego figure made of him, and the grandmother of Chris Pine, the new model James T. Kirk and Steve Trevor. Mm-hmm. So there's your comic Star Trek connection right there. Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Good looks running the family, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, she was very... Pretty, so you know, pass some jeans. He's down. pretty. Yeah, I know. Pass some jeans down. He's stupid, good looking. Yeah, that's <laughs> a Chris Pine. Uh, not that he's stupid, he's just stupid good. He's so good looking, it's stupid. Yeah, it's just. <laughs> no, I like Chris Pine quite a bit. Uh, Dracula's revival is very well done, and no doubt the work of John P. Fulton, who did all the special effects in the Invisible Man series. I mean, it's cool how you see his, you see his veins, his nervous yeah. system, and you see his muscle and. And then he turns into John Carradine. Yeah. Who's no one's favorite Dracula. <laughs> well, you know what Danny said. <laughs> yeah, Danny's like, that's Dracula? It's like, that's not Dracula. <laughs> she was just looking. I mean, she was, sitting, she was reading a book or, sitting, you know, she was in there while she we were watching, watching it. Yeah. yeah. And she just looked up. She's like, that's not Dracula. He's not a Dracula type. Yeah, that's what she, <laughs> She was expecting Bela Lugosi, yeah. And and so were we all, honey. But anyway, uh, yeah. uh, (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's not that he's bad, but it's just that he's not Lugosi. And it doesn't help that in his first appearance here, he is such a a vulnerable state. And he, he, he just got this look on his face like... Oh, don't don't throw me out of my coffin, man! I gotta have my coffin, you know. It's like, it also doesn't help, and this bothered me that the tie on his cape is made from the tassel from the curtains from Gone with the Wind. <laughs> I'm like, what the crap, honey? And he doesn't. That's the I noticed that too. It's the it. It almost looks like I hate to say this, but it his his cape. The way is the the ties hang down looks like a kid's bad Halloween costume, yes. like a bad Dracula outfit. Well, what I'm saying, he yeah. borrowed it from somebody's curtains. Yeah, the tie backs. <laughs> but Lugosi's cape was—I mean, you never even saw where it was tied, and he always looked very, very regal. And 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 I, and and Carradine doesn't look when he gets the cape off, he doesn't look bad. But he just when he's got the cape on, we'll get to the other part later. But it just—he just doesn't have a real good. They did. They didn't. They didn't work to make him his look like Bam. You know. Yeah. Uh, like a like a visual impressive look there, but of course Carradine is. We're talking about Anne Gwen. Carradine's got a whole freaking dynasty of actors uh, of sons who follow in his footsteps, including David, Keith, and Robert. So, you know, everybody knows the 
something of the Carradine boys from Kung Fu to Revenge of the Nerds. So Carradine is, I think Carradine's actually really effective in the scene where he puts Rita in her trance, you know. He's got that strange, elongated, but, you know, good looks about him. But he kind of has an otherworldly feel to him because of it. And he's got a great voice. No? No. Didn't work for him? At all. <laughs> I'm sorry. I work. mean, when he was on screen, it pulled me out of it. I'm just like... Really? Yeah, it really did. There was just mm. something... I'm, I mean, my eight-year-old daughter and I have the same opinion. He's just not the type. Not this true. isn't the role for him. Mm. I yeah. mean, I've seen him in other stuff. Yeah. But this is not... Yeah. He to should. me, I'm just like, nah. He, he, you know, in later years, he usually played the creepy old guy. You know, yeah. like he was the... Um, He's the Undertaker in uh, in uh, uh, the Shootist with John Wayne, and uh, I mean he's in a ton of stuff. I mean, yeah, he's a ton. Okay. I mean, I think he did like some like four hundred some movies, and he played Dracula again. He played not only for Universal, but he was in like the Billy the Kid meets Dracula. He was Dracula. <laughs> See, I mean, again, <laughs> laughable. Yeah, but he he played Dracula on stage in the stage version later. And he always wanted to have the mustache, which is why he's got a, he's, they wouldn't let him give him a big droopy mustache, but it's why he's got the mustache, which we'll get to that later too. But, I mean, that's a really good way to put that. To me, Carradine is the guy, he plays other stuff, but he's the understudy for Dracula. He went on because somebody else wasn't available, in this case, Lugosi. He's just, this isn't his. He mm. doesn't own the part. Mm. Okay. Well, I... I'll, I, I'll, I'll say, yeah, I'll agree with you there, but I think I'm usually pretty kind of dismissive of him. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it's because he, a lot of his promo pictures, he looks, I don't know, he just, he doesn't have the presence of Lugosi or Christopher Lee. Right, that's, He doesn't you know, have the suave kind of strange presence of Chris, of uh, Lugosi and the very commanding, oh shit, scary commanding presence of Christopher Lee. Right. You know, so I think that's why he kind of comes up short. But I thought he, the scene where he mesmerizes her, I, that's the best showing I've seen of him so far in a, with a critical eye. Now, I haven't watched House of Dracula again. We'll see him again next year when we do House of Dracula. Okay. Because he's Dracula in that, so maybe we can reevaluate then. You know, I, it is a nice bit of drama. Rita gets instantly infatuated with the undead. Of course, that's the classic Dracula formula. It's either me or Again, I think because of the timing and where this was part of this movie, I really think that this is like it was a full script, but they're like, you know what? This isn't quite enough for a full movie. Let's put it in here with this. Well, you know, it's it's weird. Universal didn't seem like they, they didn't pounce on Dracula like they would have the other, like they did with the other monsters as far as trying to do a series. I mean, they did they did Dracula's Daughter, and then years later they did Son of Dracula right the year before this with, with Lon Chaney Jr. as Count Alucard, who may or may not be Dracula or his son. Nobody ever really knows. But they just, it's like this sequence was just a truncated version of the usual Dracula story. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. But you know what? I think honestly, one thing that kills Carradine, it's that damn top hat. I mean, when he's he's always got that top hat on, and maybe that's why I like the scene where he didn't have it on because it, I think it just makes him look goofy. He looks like a low rent Mister Hyde. Mm. Now Lagozzi wore the hat, you know, the top hat briefly when he went to the opera, right? But and, immediately took it off. But he looked good in it. Yeah, you know. So it's 
I, I don't know if it's like the costuming just wasn't, they didn't fit his costume properly and it didn't help him or, or what, but who knows. But we brought up Christopher Lee earlier. Now, Carradine is, drives his own carriage like mad with people chasing after him. And that's right. something Christopher Lee will do a couple times in, in his Dracula movies. And in Dracula 80, 1972, the, the, he dies on the spokes of his carriage wheel and Van right. Helsing gets him. So, spoiler alert. That's at the beginning of the movie, so it doesn't really matter. Man, <laughs> Neiman is a real scumbag. I mean, he just ditches Drax Carlton. Oh, yeah, after. just to give him some time, more time. Yeah, and just, so, yeah. Ooh. Now, the wagon crash and the subsequent Dracula death sequence are really well done, except for one thing. Did you catch this? I didn't catch this. Okay. You take a closer look when Drac, you know... It shows the the carriage when he sees the coffin getting Daniel throws the coffin out of Lampini's wagon. Dracula's like, oh crap, and is like looking, you know, and right at that moment the pen comes out and the horses run away right. from his carriage, Dracula's, and he it's getting ready to crash and he leaps away from it. Well, when it shows Carradine getting up, his little mustache is missing on the right side of his lip hmm. <laughs> through that whole part. But here's something that we really need to say. When Daniel, whoever did the stunt work for him, you think about that. He's going from the front of the carriage, over the top, around and down the second set yeah. of the wagon and flipping it off all while it's moving. I mean, yeah, whoever was, did the stunt work for that did a great job. I mean, he swings around. I mean, There was some good stunt work there. That's true, yeah. Now, they did show a close-up of J. Carroll Nash in front of a, you know, back projection right. thing with, he was, but he did leap from one car to the next. But yeah, that, they, they actually showed somebody. I'm sure it wasn't him. Right. Well, I'm saying, yeah. you know, that, but that was a really cool scene. Yeah. Just the action part of it. Yeah. That, that, that was real done. Yeah. But yeah, he was missing his mustache then. Now the effect of the sun rising over the mountains is really well done. Especially for them. Yeah, it was. And, and, you know, that's it for Dracula. Yeah. He's out of the movie. He never meets the Wolfman or the Frankenstein no, monster. he's done. Yeah. So that's like, you know, I mean, you know, probably some kids that saw that in 1944 were like, where the crap's Dracula now? <laughs> yeah, it's like, I mean, the first time I watched it, I was like, so is Dracula, is he coming back later? I mean, I kept waiting for him to... Pop back up, you know, he's Dracula. Resurface and nope. Yep, that's it. He's gone. So no monster battle royale uh, in this one. So now we're a half an hour into the movie, and we're just now getting to the setup we'll follow through the end of the film, where we meet Alonka and all that. And I swear this this almost feels like an anthology film with Neiman and Daniel as the bridging characters. characters. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Elena Verdugo, who played Alonka, her family is said to have once owned much of what would one day be Hollywood, including Universal Studios. So the land and everything? Yeah, yeah. Huh. Uh, she went on to a very prolific TV career, including seven seasons on Marcus Welby, M.D., as Nurse Consuelo Lopez. And she was only 19 in this movie. So there was quite a bit of age difference between her and Lon Chaney Jr., because he was in his 30s pretty good right? by now. Now... Here's another one of Universal's infamous geography problems. It's not nearly as bad as Karis the Mummy going down in a bog in somewhere in New England, and then in the next movie, he comes out of a bog in Louisiana. But, <laughs> mm. 
or no, then again, maybe it is. Maybe they're that far apart. In Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, the Frankenstein home was that of Ludwig Frankenstein, one of Henry's sons, who relocated from the town of Frankenstein to Viseria. And also, Viseria was spelled V-A-S-A-R-I-A there. It's spelled V-I-S-A-R-I-A here. So the town where they should be looking is Neiman's own hometown of Viseria, not the village of Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody got confused. <laughs> and so are we now. When we get to the actual whipping scene with Alonka, mm -hmm. that's, it's actually, even though it's off camera, because like they get the extras to stand in the way of him right. coming down on her, it's it's still pretty brutal. I mean, I know. it's like, and then Daniel comes and, you know, chokes the crap out of him and starts whipping him. But it, it's funny because, you know, J. Carol Nash really does a really great job as Daniel because you sympathize with him because he loves Ilanka, you kind of forget the fact that he just killed two guys earlier. Right. You know? it's like, <laughs> so, yeah, nice job. But the same token, you know, you have Daniel, a stranger, leaping to her defense when you've got all of these women that are just watching this other woman get beat mm -hmm. against one man. Why didn't they beat out of him? <laughs> uh, gypsy culture, I don't know. And, then on, top, <laughs> and then on top of it, I mean, you think that the one woman who does try and stop him has some familiar co connection to Alonka, but nobody says anything when Daniel takes her off and puts her in their. I'm, she says something about they picked her. They picked her up a while back or something. something. She wasn't like actually part of their group. She had just joined it or something. So I guess maybe that's one reason why. You know, she was an outsider even amongst them. So. You know, in a way, she was another castaway yeah. like the rest of them. So, now, Alonka is lively, but, man, is she shallow. shallow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, anyone is going to react a bit to seeing that someone's got a humped back for the first time when they didn't think they did. Right. I mean, you you're, you're, you probably just couldn't. You would, you would feel bad about it afterwards, but she acts like she's completely repulsed by him. Yeah. You know, and, you know, hey, you're a gypsy floozy, honey. I mean, you, know, true. you, you ain't exactly the catch of the day, you know? Right. It's like, <laughs> beggars can't be choosers, literally. Uh, <laughs> of course, a hunchback in an unrequited love romance scenarios with a gypsy girl is straight out of the hunchback of Notre Dame. And Universal actually hadn't touched on that concept since Cheney Sr. Mm -hmm. uh, another studio, I think it was RKO, made the version with Charles Lawton and uh, Marine O'Hara, but Universal didn't make that version. Mm -hmm. so. Now, one thing that this film suffer, suffers from is recycled plot points. And Larry found the Frankenstein monster on ice in the last film, and now he and the creature are, are back... both popsicles yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do love how... You get little hints of the Wolfman theme when you see him. Yeah. You know, that's because he's got the best theme. Hans Salter peppers in his Wolfman's theme here and there. There's The music in this movie is really good. Uh, but the Wolfman theme, I think, is Universal's best. So it's nice to hear it. And, of course, we hear a lot of it later. You know, I mean, I'm a big Lon Chaney Jr. fan but and a big fan of Larry Talbot. But his dialogue keeps getting more and more purple with each movie. I mean... He pulls it off, Cheney does, but he's kind of losing a bit of his everyman quality by sounding like a, a low-rent Shakespeare, you know. He's yeah. like, I know the tortures of the damned, you know. And things like, I mean, you know, it's yeah. very, 
very grandiose. But by the same token, by going through what he's gone through, he's been had time to be more introspective too. Well, that's true. And because he's not with everyday people, he's staying by himself because he feels like he needs to. That again leads to more introspection. Yeah, I like that. Later on, we're jumping ahead, but when she he tells Alonka his name's Lawrence, it's just. Do, do they call you Larry? And he's like, they used to. You know, I thought that was very, I mean, you, that was like a really, really well-delivered line. It just, I mean, it spoke volumes of how, you know, he is isolated from yeah. everybody. He doesn't even have Maliva anymore because apparently they just blew her up in the castle last time, and that was the last we saw of her. Yeah. So she's gone. So <laughs> Neiman sure got some great intel in prison. How does he know the Wolfman's name is Larry Talbot? Uh-huh. How did he know about Dr. Mannering and the events of the last movie? Was it because Karloff read the script? <laughs> that's what we, you know. Yeah, that's almost has to be. Now, when Larry comes to, he's not wearing shoes, which is a nice touch that they often forget because sometimes he, you know, he'll change and he'll suddenly be wearing shoes. Uh-huh. Uh, but now in the next scene, he has shoes and socks on, but who's to say he didn't get them from the wagon? Or somewhere in the ruins of the mm. castle or something. So, you know. Well, the, the fact that he didn't and then he did makes me think he just went and found a pair of shoes. They might don't have to fit him right. But, you know, it's better than nothing when you're walking around in the snow. Okay. I, I'm going to no-prize that one. There are a couple of times in this movie where the monster doesn't look like Glenn Strange in the makeup. It looks like a wax sculpture. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering if it isn't. Yeah. It's kind of odd considering that Glenn Strange was a stuntman, too. So it's not like they... You know, if they were going to use somebody, they wouldn't just use him, mm-hmm. you know. Alonka doesn't waste any time macking on Larry. Of nope. course, it's, you know, it's uh, he's appealing in that old, I can fix the dark stranger angle. angle. You know, yeah. I can, I can, I can, I, I can fix him. I can save him. I he's can... a bad boy. Let me fix him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when they get to Neiman's lab and we have that cleaning montage, I can just hear a bad 80s pop song in the background. I'm seriously, I thought about, you know, when they did the first Muppets remake movie here, what was it, four or five years ago? We built this city. <laughs> we built this city on rock and roll. That's what was going through my head. <laughs> Jefferson Starship for the win. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking the song in the Monster Squad, Bop Until You Drop, or whatever it is, which is like, another's like, what are they really saying? Because around that same time, uh, Cindy Lauper did She Bop, and that was in the Goonies, or that wasn't in the Goonies, was it? No, no. That no. Was, no, it wasn't the Goonies, but it was about, you know. Yeah. Yeah, the Goonies had good enough. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but, but anyway, it that type of song. Yes. But, and, I mean, what gets me is a lot, what she Alonka's just helping him clean, do all this stuff. I mean, and there, there's brains and canisters. What the crap? <laughs> she didn't really. Is, is she not? Well, they do show Daniel like it's like she's hanging, kind of hanging near Larry, and he's like, he like shows her the Frankenstein monster, and she's like, oh, and she like goes into Larry's chest and like hides yeah. her head, and then he's like, well, crap, you know, I don't know if he was trying to impress her. Look what I got. See this? You know? Yeah. <laughs> or just trying to freak her out, or. Kind of get her back for ignoring him, or but yeah, she just perfect. She's just going right along with yeah, it. I mean, you know, if I was her, I'd been like, "Hey guys, thanks for the ride. Uh, you guys have fun with what you're doing. I'm I'm out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, good luck with the whole brain thing and the big green monster and whatever the hell's wrong with you, Larry. But uh, y'all y'all's too weird. I'm gone. 
Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Now, I will say this. You know, we talked about how she macked on Larry, and it seemed like it, you know, she instantly loved him. But it shows the sign when they're going to Viseria that it's 150 kilometers. Uh-huh. Well, you've got to think, they're in a horse on, you know, Horse using horses. Yeah. So you're talking probably it took them close to a month to get there. Yeah. Because they're only going to cover X number of miles per day. So this was at least over two or three weeks it took them to get there anyway. Yeah, it took them a while. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Now, I like the vacuum-sealed lab table sauna they got going on. I want one of those. Yeah, keep your monster fresh. You know, you know, it nice rem- cleanse, <laughs> nice pool cleansing. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm Exfoliate the Frankenstein monster. monster. <laughs> it, it cleans up. It cleans up the scars he got from Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, you know? that's why. Yeah, that's why all those went away. Plus, he's got the. You know, now he's got the. The he's got the beauty mark now. The the mole. The fa- the infamous mole because they used to just darken in that sunken in part of Karloff's cheek because he'd take his his dental appliance out. Oh yeah, and that made him look more you know gaunt, yeah. gaunt and and look like his face was sunk in on one side. Like almost like makes you think that whoever body was might have got bashed in the head or something. Yeah. And uh, they used to shade that in. Well, when Cheney took it over, they gave him, you know, they, it's almost like a little, like a beauty mark. He's like Cindy Crawford or something. <laughs> no, man. Uh, but that, that sauna lab table reminds me of the uh, Monsterizer from the Remco lines. Oh, yeah, the, yeah. Um, you know. A little bit, like because they made one for the nine inch and the the three and three fourths, which I love those. You know, I got all the figures in the play case now, thanks to you. But I, I don't have the monsterizer, but it's pricey. So yeah, well, honey, you know, there's only so much flirting I can do because I got the other at the toy show because I flirted with that old guy to get a better price. <laughs> I felt kind of dirty after that. <laughs> That's all on you. I didn't tell you to do that. I know, but you know. <laughs> Uh, where go, Alonka? There you go. Uh, oh! <laughs> ow, 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 God. Ow. Uh, okay, now here's where the brain business really loses me. Oh, my. Uh, go ahead. Neiman says he's going to put Almond's brain in the Frankenstein monster and give Strauss the brain of the Wolfman. So he's going to give the monster a new brain, that would be Almond, and put Larry's brain in Strauss's body. But later he tells Daniel he's going to put the monster's brain in Larry's body. Talbot's body is the perfect home for the monster's brain, which I will add to and subtract from in my experiments. Now, I guess that all makes sense as far as swapping and, you know, there won't be one body with two brains in it or something. But what will all this gain him? I mean, what's he going to get out of it? If he puts Larry's brain... And Strauss's body, does he know that he won't be curing him at all? I'm I'm so very confused. I know, and you gotta think, you know, the personality. So if he puts Almond's brain in the Frankenstein monster, he's giving his enemy this huge these huge physical powers. Right, right. And he charges him up. Yeah. And you go to put he's gonna he's got I mean, yeah, he's gonna give his own lab assistant who's obviously gonna have a grudge against him now that he's you know, took his brain out of his body and he's killed him and his, has his brain in a jar with his name on it now. And then if you've got his brother's brain in currently in Frankenstein's body, what happens to that brain? It's Which going in Larry's brain? body. And then so he's cha- giving, making his brother, he's changing his brother from Frankenstein into the Wolfman. Yeah. Mm. 
So does the lycanthropy go with the brain or the body? Yeah, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, I it, it this whole brain swapping business got makes out my of, brain hurt. It got out of hand in Ghost of Frankenstein. Like I brought up before, we didn't cover that movie. One of these days we'll have to because I don't want to. In that movie, it is so strange that. The monster wants the brain of that little girl he befriends in his body. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's. I mean, it's like don't, don't they realize if you know you you you'll go with your brain, you'll die. Your personality <laughs> is with your brain. Yeah, I mean, it's like I know that brain science was, you know, in its infancy then, or you know, but I'm pretty sure they had pretty good ideas about. Daniel gets it. That's the reason he wants Larry's body. Right. Yeah. Because he. Re- Daniel gets it. You put my brain, I'm going to be me inside Larry's body. Yeah, Daniel gets it. Daniel, the hunchback assistant gets it, but Dr. Neiman, who's supposedly a genius... Does not. Doesn't understand it. Yeah, the the whole... The brain swapping stuff in these movies just gets really ridiculous. Now, in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, it makes sense. They want to put... Uh, Someone easily controlled. Yes, yeah. they want to put Wilbur's brain, uh, Costello's brain, in in the Frankenstein monster's body because he's dumb and and Dracula can control him. That makes sense. But yeah, you don't put your enemy's brain in the Frankenstein monster's body. Hello! (laughs) Now Strauss, who is only really in that one scene, is played by actor Michael Mark, who played the father of the young girl the monster accidentally drowns in Frankenstein. I wonder if he's related to Marky Mark in Funky Bunch. I doubt it. (laughs) Sorry, I can't help it. Oh, I think that guy's last name's Wahlberg. Uh, I know, but I'm just saying, I'm getting smart Jeez. I'm getting punchy. You apparently are. Uh, man, Alonka doesn't hold back when she attacks Daniel for telling her about Larry's lycanthropy. Jeez. I mean, she just, I mean, I mean. And then what kills me is not five minutes later, she's like, oh yeah, it is true. Yeah. Then come back around and apologize. Yeah. All that stuff about hating you and you being ugly. I was just playing. I was just playing. (laughs) We still cool, right? Here, let me tickle the back of your knee again. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Of course, then Daniel goes and whips the monster, and you know he's going to get it for that, and of course he does. Now, everyone but Alonka at this point knows that Larry is the wolfman. Why didn't someone at least try to lock him up? On a night of a full moon. Yeah. Couldn't they have strapped him down in the lab? Why didn't he say, strap me down in the lab? Yeah, lock me away, knock me out. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in in uh, we're going back to Adam Costello meet Frankenstein. He has them lock him up in his room. It doesn't do much good. Right. But he has them lock him up in his room. What if he killed one of them instead of going to, to town for the all-you-can-eat throat buffet? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean come on. I do like that the Viseria villagers don't have a hard time leaping to werewolf. But at this point, they should know anything is possible in these films. You know, it's like, oh, that's a werewolf. Yep. We've been there, done that. I'm sorry, but I think I'd move. (laughs) I'd move. I'd move, yeah. And not Viseria or Frankenstein, either one. Yeah, you know. Now, believe it or not, this is the beginning of the Silver Bullet's entry into werewolf lore. In the previous films, which we've already established that Kurt Siogmak pretty much established werewolf lore as we know it. Mm-hmm. And this is where he makes his probably his final contribution. In, in the previous films, it was just silver. Like Larry's dad bashes him in the head with the silver cane, cane and yeah. kills him. 
and then the other one, the the last movie, they just get blown up with the dam. The angle of someone who loves them enough to understand comes and goes. You hear about that sometimes. But the silver bullet becomes established canon. It's the wolfman's or a werewolf's kryptonite. Right. And it's even the title of a Stephen King novel that's a, also a really good movie up to the last like five minutes where the werewolf looks like a freaking bear. I know. <laughs> God. Plus it's got one of the... It's both Corey's or one Corey in that? I think it's... Corey Haim, ain't it? I can't remember. I think it's Haim. I think he's in a wheelchair, ain't he? It's Corey Haim, Megan Fellows. Megan Fellows in it? Yeah. Anna Green Gables? I think so. I think so. We can check that. And Gary Busey. Gary Busey's in it, yeah. He was scarier than the werewolf because he's Gary Busey. Now I want to know. Yeah, we'll look it up later. Okay, but I think it's Megan Fellows. That was one of the things she was in before, I think it was before Anna Green Gables. Yeah, that was, like, that was like 84 or something like that. Right I, in there. Now, I might be mistaken about that. That's me That's me just pulling a fact out of my tuchus. It was but, before you know. Lost Boys, I know. Right, I know, but I'm saying I think it was Megan Fellows. Okay. Was the girl. Oh, and the, the poem, you know, even a man who says his prayers by night, blah, blah, blah. It now says werewolf. Instead of Wolf, according to Alonka. So yeah. it keeps getting slightly altered with each sequel. Right. But we first see Frank get charged on the slab. Again, that looks like a wax. Oh, that was bad. Wax figure. It or looked like a candle that had been left out too long. One of those Halloween candles. candles. I was just like, <laughs> when, they, when I first saw it and they were charging up, I'm like, did they put too much spark in there? What happened <laughs> here? It kind of melty. <laughs> it might be somebody in makeup, but it's not very well done. No. Uh, according to the rest of it. And I can't see. The rest of it looks really good, so... Uh, again, why not just lock Larry up on the second night, knock him out, Neiman, it's such a freaking genius, but I'm just with, I'm with just about everyone else, Glenn Strange is my second favorite universal Frankenstein monster after Karloff, unfortunately he never gets much to do, and he spends way too much time strapped to a lab in each of his three films he's in, but he's got a really, really great look. Except in the candle portion. Well, that's, I don't think that's him. Well, I know, but I'm just saying. When it's him... I mean, he, you know, I mean, they they said, you know, Jack Pierce, the of course, created the makeup for all the Universal Monsters, saw him in the the uh, cantina, the, the Universal uh, cafeteria, whatever, and, like, looked at him and said, hey, come see me later or something. He's like, okay. And he said, I want to try something on you. And he just sat him down, didn't tell him what he was going to do. I think he said he'd pay him something, you know. Yeah. I pay you, blah, blah, blah. So he was under contract, I guess, or whatever, as a stunt man slash bit player or something. And he didn't know what he was doing to him. And he, you know, did his work to him, turned him around and showed him in the mirror. And he's like, first thing, apparently, Strange always said, the first thing he said was, oh, my God, I'm Boris Karloff. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. And, and he, he was uh, he was the utility Frankenstein monster from here on out, and is on a ton of the merchandise from the '60s and stuff. I mean, a lot of it's Karloff, but it's about fifty-fifty. You know, mm. some of it's because they got better. You know, they got better uh, production stills and stuff from that. From yeah, him, to work from from work from. So he's got such a craggy face. You know, mm. he's got you know he played uh, Butch Cavendish in the F, the first episodes of the Lone Ranger with Clayton Moore. Oh. He was the one that killed the, you know, Lone Ranger's brother and all the Rangers. So technically he's got an action figure from, you know, Gabriel in there that I got that's oh. technically so it's looks more like him than any other version. So 
So that's cool. So that's, he's got a lot of cred with me just because of that, too. I think Alonka's really going to wish she shot Larry before he transformed. So. Yeah. And speaking of that transformation, I don't know. I think I say this with every movie, but this may be Larry's best transformation in the whole series because he's just looking in the mirror, mm -hmm. and it's straight on. He's standing up. He doesn't have his head into a pillow or anything. It's really well done, and Cheney's eyes just look nuts. Yeah. He's just got this real crazy look on his face, and he's working those bottom fangs. It's like it almost looks like they pop out because he kind of, you know, and has them stick out, and it looks really good. And I love how he crashes through the door past Alonka. That's really, really sweet scene. But there's one down part to that. Yes. And what is that? Because while he's looking into the mirror, you can see in the mirror his hands don't change. Right. And they don't change that whole scene through the crash or anything else. It's human hands. Yeah, he doesn't have his Wolfman gloves it's on. on. No. Nope. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> But uh, Universal actually had a professional screamer set to dub the screams of uh, Vergato, but she was so shocked by Cheney's Wolfman appearance, she did the job to everyone's satisfaction. They just kept it in. Yeah. She hadn't seen him in the makeup when he come busting through that glass, and she she cool. really did scream, so they just left it in. <laughs> Now, when the Wolfman dies, Cheney plays it like this is it. Yeah, it's like his. You know, he does some. He's right up in the camera, and he's like, he's got this look of this can't be happening. You know, I'm I'm dying. You know, yeah. And and uh, it's it, you really. I mean, you actually feel sympathy for the Wolfman in that scene, which is you normally wouldn't for him, you, for Larry, sure, but not him. But unfortunately, it's. Not the death of the wolf man. <laughs> but at the end of it, you know, after Alonka crawls to him, because, you know, she's yeah. been wounded and everything else, he looks like he's got almost a, a slight smile on his face. Like, he's it's over. Yeah. yeah. And Danny noticed his mouth does twitch up yeah. right there. And I did, too. I caught that. when she. I guess maybe when she bumps him, he kind of, you know, moves his mouth. But... I mean, you can, people's bodies twitch and stuff after they die anyway, yeah. so, but you could chalk it up to that, but, yeah, of course, they, she crawls over to him, lays her head on his chest, and they die together. And... But she's been bitten by a werewolf. <laughs> mm -hmm. Good point. Uh -huh. I hadn't thought of that. But, but, if he, well, he didn't, obviously, he didn't rip, of course, they never can show anything. No. He obviously didn't rip her throat out, because... You know, she yeah. didn't die instantly, yeah. but so he bit her, uh -huh. which did, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so now there's Alonka, the gypsy werewolf, running around. Uh-huh. <laughs> Good point. Uh -huh. But I don't know how that works, because Larry didn't die and come back as a werewolf. No. And he didn't die. He just was bitten, but she died. No, it, they, she never said, it's never said by Neiman or by Daniel She's dead. They yeah. say there's nothing we can do. I, I think, well, all he says is, when he brings me, he says, the wolf man. You know, Neiman said. But I, I would think that that means that she's dead. You know, because... Yeah, but they, if it's not said, it's not canon. Okay. Well, so there could be Alonka, the she-wolf out running around. So. Well, she's got a nice roomy blouse for when she transforms. It'll be okay. <laughs> Her and Oliver Reed have kind of a similar look going on. You yeah, know? She's yeah. got the female version of his thing. So um, <laughs> Now, 
if this were the end of the wolf man, his curse would have come full circle because it was caused by a gypsy, gypsy. Bela, and then it was ended by one. So that would have been kind of poetic. But yeah. now he shows up in House of Dracula. And uh, yeah, House of Dracula is going to be fun because that's like my least favorite one. <laughs> Just flat out. Because they get into they get into like oh well it's not really it's just pressure on your brain that caused you to turn into a werewolf. I'm like what? I mean that's less believable than it being a mystical curse. You yeah. know, you tell me that I can buy anything. You know, but you said oh it's pressure on the brain that causes him to sprout fur and and his you know his, his the teeth and I mean come on man you know. <laughs> well, and there's one thing we didn't talk about. When he does transform from the Wolfman back into him, back into Lon Chaney, well, back into Talbot as he's dying, it's on mannequin feet. Yeah, you can tell. Yeah. Oh, hard. And the mannequin feet—it's not a man's mannequin feet. I'd say they borrow those mannequin feet from the boys section. They're too little. <laughs> I'd say Lon Chaney's got pretty good big feet. He's a pretty, pretty I, big guy. I, yeah. yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, they look like little stubby toes. And, yeah, yeah, I mean, they look like they came from the kids section. Yeah, that was their solution of, he twitches too much, let's just use this, you know, but yeah. Uh, when we see, you know, Daniel throttle Neiman in shadow, that's really effective. Of course, it's a way to get around the sensors, but it's actually almost worse than if you saw it, because it mm -hmm. looks like it looks like he killed him. See that I was, you know, you know, and it makes you wonder if they didn't film it that way, and then decide, now nah, let's change the ending or something. Of course, he ends up dying anyway. But now, Glenn Strange, of course, the Frankenstein monster throws Daniel out the window. He would have a rougher time throwing another lab assistant through a window a few years later at having Costello meet Frankenstein, and he catches his his um, he catch he goes to throw. Uh, the woman that was playing, I can't think of her name, but she was the the evil scientist yeah. that was, you know, manipulating Wilbur. And he goes to throw her out the window. She was on, you know, obviously on uh, strings yeah. and, and a harness and things. And he goes to throw her out and she swings back and he goes to catch her because he's afraid she's going to get hurt. And he trips over something and either breaks or twists his ankle. So that's why Lon Chaney Jr. is actually in the makeup for a few scenes in the movie in the distance you like see him coming at Abbott and Costello as they're running out of the lab yeah. so he said well I'll, you know they didn't want to delay filming too long so he, yeah. he agreed to put it on so so yeah this is kind of the same scene but I guess he didn't have any trouble this time throwing <laughs> throwing him out the window um, Daniel's scream as he falls is actually Karloff from Son of Frankenstein when he finds Igor dead or mostly dead he's alive in the next movie yeah <laughs> he's, he's only mostly dead, dead. I really thought the scenes of the marshland on fire were Those really Those were. I was just like, did they? I mean, I really thought, well, when I saw it, I'm like, oh, I hope nobody got hurt while they filmed this. Yeah. I mean, because, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was raging, man. Yeah. And it's where it's in black and white. It's just all this, like, white, gray light. Yeah. It's really intense. And the, the, the wooded scenes in the fog are very similar to what was in the Wolfman. Very, uh -huh. yeah. very and atmospheric. So, you, you can watch Boris catch his breath right before he goes under, but... Of course, Dr. Neiman, if he was smart, would try to anyway, yeah. but, but, uh, so they put poor Boris through that, you know, that couldn't have been fun. So, <laughs> like every other Universal Monster film, the story just stops, which I know you pointed out. It's like, <laughs> yeah, there's no coda, there's no nothing. Uh, of course, everyone but the young Hussman couple is dead, 
and we've already forgotten about them, so there's really nobody to even have a... There might be Alonka, the wolf woman. Yeah, that's true. She could be. Her and McDougal from Abner Costello meet Frankenstein are terrorizing people as well. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, This movie is a lot of fun. It runs by a nice clip, and you have strong performances from Karloff and Nash to get over any bumpy moments like we brought up. Right. Lon Chaney didn't seem quite as intense as in the previous two Wolfman entries. He roughs up Neiman a little bit, but, you know, I really like it when he loses his crap and just shakes the crap out of people and, you know, yeah. yells at them and stuff. I'm not, he doesn't do that in this one. Uh, like you said, maybe, you know, he would be more resigned to his fate and yeah. just more despondent versus, you know, anxious. So that might have something to do with it. He still gives a good performance, but, you know, he's just more morose and less excitable in this one. But yeah, the structure of this film is is really odd. Dracula's story, although part of Neiman's revenge plot, is it's practically an unrelated chapter. If this were a novel, you wouldn't blink at that because that happens. Mm-hmm. But in a movie, especially of this time, it's kind of unusual that it doesn't all tie back together. And everybody brings his her own tropes from previous Universal movies. Neiman and the monster provide the brain swapping and. Let's get him up to full power angle from the last several Frankenstein films. The Daniel Alonka Larry Triangle calls back to the hunchback. Larry, of course, brings his own Wolfman pathos, and Dracula's segment is like a ten minute version of his movie, yeah, with a carriage chase from a novel in a way. So, the, the from the Dracula novel, you know, with the at the end of the novel. Well, I still stand by. I think it was probably a, a script for a Dracula movie that they just they're just like, no, that's not long enough for a film. Yeah, and they smushed it onto the front of this. It may have. Now, Karloff had feared his monster character would have been reduced to a prop eventually, which is why he left the role after Son of Frankenstein. And I bet you even he couldn't have known how right he would be with Glenn Strange being mostly furniture until the last two minutes of this movie. Yeah. I mean, he pretty much is just on that slab, you know, or in the carriage with little compresses on his neck and his... Yeah. You know, so... Uh, Despite a few adult story components, Universal's horror output was now targeted more to youngsters. It was in the B-movie camp, you know. Yeah. And Karloff saw this, and he was very grateful to producer Val Luton for bringing him into a series of moody psychological type horror films directly following this movie and Karloff's next film was in my opinion his best role the body snatcher directed by a very young Robert Weiss it's awesome yep have we we done that yet no we have not we should do that sometime well we'll take a break here and when we come back we'll have a surprise well it's a surprise comic if you're just listening to this and not looking on iTunes if not then you'll probably know or the the fire and water uh, website but we'll, we'll come back we'll cover a comic with a monster rally of its own. My name is Bob Fisher, and I host a podcast called Superman Forever Radio. In every episode, I'll take an aspect of this character's long history and talk about it, from 1938 to the present day. From the comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, Superman has been part of my life for over 50 years. And if you'd like to know why, join me. For each and every episode of Superman Forever Radio. So point your favorite podcatcher to Superman Forever Radio. That's Superman Forever Radio. SupermanForever.com.
Okay, we're back, and we're going to pull a comic, or actually two comics, from the dusty long box deep buried in the crypt of the House of Frankenstein. And we have chosen Superman's Pal, the new Jimmy Olsen, number 142, October 1971, on sale August 19th, 1971, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. The cover by Jack Kirby, mostly. Looks like an Aurora model kit box, which is cool because there's an ad for Aurora's controversial monster scene series of kits on the back. In an eerie woodland setting, a large vampire spreads his arms while Superman reacts, slightly stunned, but with his fist back, and looking a lot like he was totally redrawn by Neil Adams, because he was. Jimmy Olsen is getting his very baggy green jumpsuit ripped up by a werewolf-like creature, or maybe it's a lion. It's kind of hard to tell. Mm. The cover blurb reads... It's the vampire bit, but like you've never seen it before. The Man from Transylvania was written, drawn, and edited by Jack Kirby, inked, and no doubt erased, by Vince Coletta, and every Superman, Clark Kent, and Jimmy Olsen head was redrawn by an uncredited Murphy Anderson. There you go. (laughs) On the outskirts of Metropolis, two strange figures converse, a vampire and a werewolf named Lupic, both hailing from a mysterious place known as Transylvania. Using his mental powers, the vampire finds the one he seeks, a woman named Laura Conway. He emits strange beams from his eyes that race across the city and leave two familiar marks in the neck of the sleeping and unaware Laura Conway. The next morning, Miss Conway, secretary to Galaxy Broadcasting System mogul Morgan Edge, is greeted by WGBS employees Clark Kent and Jimmy Olsen, who wish to have a word with their new boss. Clark notes Laura's peaked color, But he and Jimmy soon see something even more astonishing, a pair of flashing fangs and two bite marks on her neck. Clark and Jimmy are no dummies. They've seen this movie before. They know Miss Conway seems to be the victim of a vampiric attack. When Conway faints and they move her her unconscious body to their boss's couch, they see something even more startling. Or actually, what they don't see is startling. Laura casts no reflection in Edge's mirror. While the mild-mannered reporter and Mr. Action contemplate their next move, a bat flies in the room, as if on cue. The bat transforms into our vampire character, who introduces himself as Count Dragorian of Transylvania. Dragorian has need of Miss Conway and no time to fool with Jimmy and Clark. He zaps them with his evil eye, and our story suddenly cuts to a subplot involving the Newsboy Legion that is of no concern of us, so we'll just skip it. Back at the WGBS building, Clark quickly comes to and listens as Dragorian mesmerizes Laura. He asks of the whereabouts of Dabney Donovan, her former employer. Laura's will finally breaks, and she tells her new master that Donovan was at the NASA Science Research Center, but she only received her orders from recorded messages. Clark leaps for the vampire, but he disappears in a puff of smoke. Jimmy and Laura snap out of it. Her features now back to normal. The journalistic duo leaves her in the care of a nearby clinic and head for the abandoned research center. Clark informs Jimmy that the center was once a booming place in the 50s where scientists simulated what environments astronauts may discover on other planets. When they arrive, they find no guards, an open door, and a werewolf. The werewolf Lupic attacks Clark while Jimmy attempts to bash him with a metal fence post. He gets his attention and lures him away from his downed friend. Of course, Jimmy didn't know Clark really didn't need the assist, but that gave him the chance to transform into the Man of Steel, Superman. Yes, Superman, strange visitor from another planet who leaps between a prone Jimmy and his savage attacker at the last minute. 
Superman picks up the hairy beast and spins him around like a wheel until Dragorian interrupts and blasts him with his evil eye beams once more. The two monsters have vanished again, but Superman caught a glimpse of something as they disappeared. The Man of Tomorrow's vision powers watch the two strange creatures shrink from out of sight. As Superman and Jimmy investigate the research center, the last son of Krypton assures Jimmy that Clark is fine and went to town for help. The heroes find an unconscious security guard and the lab of Dabney Donovan himself. Superman explains that Donovan is involved in the secret DNA project and is a mad, no, a wild scientist. Donovan hid something Dragorian desperately wants and is unable to find it. Jimmy makes a huge leap of logic when he sees the photo of a strange planet with formations like horns. He wonders, could Dragorian's home of Transylvania be a planet? Superman uses his microscopic vision on the photo and reads a fascinating message hidden in the grains of the composition. Bloodmore, destruct date, 1971. Jimmy recalls that Bloodmore is the name of an old cemetery outside of town. The Man of Steel flies his pal to the old cemetery, where they then spy Dragorian and Lupek entering an ancient mausoleum. Superman moves the giant stone slab effortlessly, but postulates the monsters shrank down to enter. Jimmy wonders why his friend is so hung up on his smallness theory, but soon learns the answer. As the Metropolis Marvel and the cub reporter descend the stairs, Superman tells his chum to think small, like Dabney Donovan, who is out to simulate small continents, small oceans, and small life. Finally, in the bottom floor of the crypt, they come upon it, amidst a swirl of atmospheric fog and what appears to be floating movie cameras, they find the small, room-sized planet of Transylvania. The cover is a lot of fun. It's Halloween spooky, and it fits in with DC's output at the time. Their horror books were really popular, and like every other superhero book looked like a horror comic back then. Mm -hmm. Dragorian is huge on the cover, though, but that may be due to Adams redrawing Kirby, which he did on many covers back then. I don't know if you know this, but, you know, the whole big thing is, you know, Jack Kirby left Marvel because he wanted he wanted to be compensated for, you know, basically being the co-creator of all these characters, being basically being the art director, and, you know, Marvel, whatever reason, weren't willing to go along with what he wanted. And he kept getting, you know, more disgruntled and... And Carmine Infantino offered him, you know, you can come over to D.C. and do your own books, edit your own books, write them, draw them. And so he did. So that's, you know, it was a big deal. He left Marvel and came and, you know, he, he launched uh, New Gods, Mr. Miracle, Forever People, and took over Jimmy Olsen. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and using Jimmy Olsen, of course, he was using Superman. And for whatever reason, D.C. decided that they had to have Superman and Jimmy still look like their house style. And so they had either Neil Adams or Murphy Anderson or Al Plastino, who's an old Superman artist, redraw every Superman and Jimmy face, uh, or just about, that you saw in the comics. So it's like, you know, they invite the guy over to do his own thing, and then they do <laughs> it's, yeah. it's the poor guy that never got treated the way he should have anywhere. It's bullshit. <laughs> but, you know, and it's kind of funny to think Neil Adams was even involved in it, because later on he was so... Such a proponent for, you know, creator rights. rights yeah. Got Siegel and Schuster, you know, basically was one of the main people who guilted Warner Brothers into giving Siegel and Schuster a pension. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of odd to see that he, you know, redrew, would even be willing to redraw anything. But over at Kirby. that time he didn't have as much power. And so, well, that's you know. true too. 
Yeah, but you know, and I mean, he probably thought, well, if I don't do it, they'll if I don't redraw Superman, they'll have somebody else do the cover entirely. Right. So I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to blame Neil Adams for it, but it just it just seems weird, and it just it you I mean you look at this cover and I mean, it just leaps out to you that. Superman's not drawn by the same guy. I mean, Jimmy's face, I think, is Kirby. Yeah, yeah. On the on the first cover, but everything else is definitely Kirby except for Superman. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, um, okay. I couldn't find any coloring credits, but whoever colored the interior blew it on the splash page. Did you notice that? It looks like this is supposed to be the moon at night. That's the sun. Uh-huh. These guys, one, the werewolf wouldn't be a werewolf anymore. Uh-huh. And that Dragorian would be ash. <laughs> it's like this blazing sun. And, you know, they're reaching her at night, you know. Right. Somebody wasn't paying attention. So, anyway. Uh, but Dragorian is one scary-looking dude on page two with his, you know, evil eye beams. It's, you know, kind of creepy-looking. Uh, I always liked how... Kirby drew women. Yeah, Laura Conway's kind of hot. She's Kirby Kirby. Yeah. <laughs> I do like that, much like the Viserians, Clark and Jimmy immediately go to vampire with Laura's symptoms because they've seen some serious shit in their time, you know. They right. they don't have time to act truly incredulous to the, oh, a vampire? Those aren't real. I mean, you know. True. I mean, they've seen some. Now, there is something that comes up later that Jimmy does act a little surprised by that really shouldn't surprise him, but anyway. Jimmy reacts to Count Gregorian's name with an it figures. Yeah. I like that this all seems like a hoary old horror movie to them because it is. Yeah. You know, even in 1971, it's still, it's already stereotypes, you know. you're already, It's tropes, you know. So, a consistency was never Kirby's strong suit. And Gregorian morphs between several looks throughout this issue. I don't know if you noticed, in some panels he seems to have a short little Fu Manchu bit a facial hair around the corner of his mouth and others that appears to be just shadow. Shadow, yeah. So it's it's kind of hard to say what he really looks like. We skipped the Newsboy Legion subplot because it doesn't matter, especially... And good God, whoever made this whole... Well, and meanwhile, blah, 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 I'm sorry, but don't do that crap if it doesn't have anything to do with the main plot. Put that crap in a section all its own. I don't like that. Well, but, I mean... No. Well, just wait a minute. <laughs> now, this was the type of storytelling that the you know, was starting to get popular, the kind of serialized, I mean, Marvel did that. They'd have subplots running. DC, that was something new at DC. They hadn't really done that. Kirby was one of the people that kind of brought that over because, you know, I mean, they've built, they've been building this storyline with the Newsboys. They've In this, they've escaped the project, and, you know, they're going out on their own, and these are obviously the clones of the original. But that very structure is what makes the Superman books in the, the late 80s and early 90s, but with the triangle numbers. So, But it all had to do with Superman. That doesn't have anything to do with well, the it, 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 in Well, in these issues, it doesn't. Well, but that's my point. In other issues, Superman and Jimmy interacted with them. And, and you know, and obviously, Dabney Donovan's involved in the same project they come from. But yeah, I see what you mean. I know what you mean. Drove me banana nanners. Okay. Uh, but you do have Flip-A-Dippa, so, you know. Come uh, on, say again. Flip-A-Dippa. <laughs> Page 10, where Dragorian in- interrogates Laura, is colored in shades of green only. And it's really eerie, and, and I like it. It's well done. So I guess the coloring guy, whoever it was, or lady, made up for their snafu on page one. Mm. 
I just want to say I miss Clark Kent in a fedora, damn it. <laughs> I mean, they've come back in. Let's have Clark dress snappily, people. He looks really sharp driving the car with a little fedora. It's not a big one. Yeah. It's not like George Reeves' old big one. But, yeah. you know, he's got the, he's got, they've updated his suit. In the 70s, they decided to, you know, there's that whole big thing. Clark Kent's got it. He became an anchor man, so he had to look sharp. He's got his pinstripe suit on. It's not his normal blue suit with red and black striped tie. So, you know, he's looking snazzy, you know. <laughs> it's a good look for him. You know, Kirby did keep up with scientific research enough to pepper his comics with plausible, if extrapolated science. And the research center on alien environments was a nice touch, especially on an Earth where aliens are well known. Right. Including its greatest hero is an alien, and everybody knows it. So, now, I want to say, you know, this is Jimmy Olsen's comic, obviously. And a lot of people give Jimmy a lot of crap nowadays. They think he's a useless character. He's a joke. You know, Zack Snyder finds him so useless he hasn't blown away in the first few minutes of BBS, which just pissed me off to no end when I found out about that. Uh, but, but I know I just violated the BBS Accords, guys. Sorry. Uh, but, but Kirby shows a Jimmy who's willing to endanger himself to save his friend Clark. Clark, yeah. And he comes at Lupic with nothing but a fence post exactly. just to get him off of Clark. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and I like, I, damn it, I like Jimmy Olsen. I like, I like Jack Larson as Jimmy Olsen on the Adventures of Superman TV show, and that's who I always think of. And Jack Larson would do that for George Reeves. He'd yeah. smack a wolf man upside the head and take off running, you know? Yeah. So, by God, leave Jimmy Olsen alone. <laughs> It's okay, Amy. I'm not disagreeing with you. It's okay. I like Mark McClure, too, but I, I always think, when I think Jimmy, I think Jack Larson. So there. Now, Jimmy does seem to be surprised by a werewolf, which he was a werewolf before, so. Yeah, but he probably can't decide if this is a wolf or a bear, depending on how he's drawn. <laughs> yeah, he looks like, Lupic looks like Calabac's hairier brother. I thought so, especially the outfit with yeah. the big stompa boots that he's got going on. I'm like... Yeah. What? Yeah, he does. He's got those. Those do look like Stompa's boots. Yeah, they do from the Female Furies. Yes, they and do. And you just got serious. I love you. You got serious <laughs> credit for pulling out the Female Fury character. Woo! And that was not in the notes or nothing. That's all you. This is why I love you. Ah. <laughs> uh, Okay, I can swallow a lot in this story, but Jimmy thinking Transylvania is the planet in the picture kind of comes out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was a leap that Kirby probably just, well, how would he know that? Oh, he just knows it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just, oh, yeah. They're like, we could extrapolate another three or four pages, but, you know, here, let's do it in one panel. We got to get this over with. Uh, you know, he didn't even know Donovan was really connected to Transylvania. Mm -hmm. You know, he could just been, he just came from there and is seeking him for some other reason. Mm -hmm. So. So Transylvania is a small horned, horned planet. planet. <laughs> it's horned. <laughs> there are no other planets with horns. <laughs> it's a green sphere with like two big devil horns coming out of it. It's really strange looking. But it just proves that Kirby had more ideas per second than most creators do in a lifetime. <laughs> and even the throwaway ones are enough to base an entire series on. I mean, you could make a whole series off of this thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. Which we'll get into in part two, which was in Superman's Pal, the new Jimmy Olsen, number 143, November 1971, on sale September 7th, 1971. Now, these books are coming out in time for Halloween, Queen. so good for them. The cover depicts Superman and Jimmy standing before the planet Transylvania with swirling mists and lots of Kirby crackle. 
They should make a cereal called Kirby Crackle. You'd Fla- eat it. Oh, hell yeah, I'd eat it. Uh, flying above them from the planet are figures of Dragorian, Lupec, and creatures that look like the Frankenstein monster, a mummy, and a hooded executioner. There are other, many other smaller, indistinguishable figures as well. The Transylvanians are done in a green color hold or surprint for those informed listeners of Who's Who with white outlines. Amazingly enough, the entire cover seems to have been drawn by Jack Kirby, including the entire body of Superman, and no kid's head exploded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we get more cover hype this time. How would you like to see the smallest planet on Earth? The Genocide Spray, in a blurb for a Newsboy Legion reprint. Genocide Spray was, and I quote, edited, written, and drawn by Jack Kirby, asking the valued assistance of Vince Coletta, who inks in Funeral Black. And again, no credit for Murphy Anderson, who redrew all the Superman and Jimmy heads. (laughs) With opening narration that speaks of how a new era of remote experimentation and enlarged bureaucracy can lead to strange uses of taxpayers' dollars, hmm, still going on today, Uh, sorry, Uh, Superman and Jimmy look on in awe at the small, horned planet of Transylvania. The Man of Steel believes the floating objects around the planet aren't cameras at all, but projectors. Donovan projected movies in the skies of Transylvania for generations of its people. Horror movies. Jimmy is about to put it all together, but his mighty pal advises him to wait for more facts first. Activating a hidden door, they find two coffins, one containing Dragorian himself in the usual vampiring coffin deep sleep. But Superman points to the metal gadgets around his head, supposing this is more than a coffin, but a decompression chamber. Jimmy concludes the thought, postulating that visitors from Transylvania come not like astronauts, but like frogmen. Just then, Lupec makes his attack, and while Superman wrestles with the werewolf, Jimmy barely misses losing his head to the mighty blow of a Frankenstein-like monster. Frankie curses Jimmy as being from Dabney Donovan's overworld but Superman shuts him up by hurling Lupic at him with a mighty throw. Jimmy notices they are now surrounded by new creepy crawlies, arrived from Transylvania by traveling coffin. Dragorian awakens and traps our heroes in something he calls a mystican, a symbol on the floor which follows them wherever they move. It is actually a microbomb, and when it explodes, our heroes are knocked out once more. Skipping that Newsboy Legion subplot again, thank you. Uh, We find Superman has been playing possum to try and scope out what these rejects from a creature feature want. Tied down to a table, above him stand Frankie, Lupec, a mummy, a female vampire, and Dragorian himself. Frankie mentions something about the hour of the demon dog drawing near. Dragorian lowers a giant spiked slab over Superman's body and demands to know where Dabney Donovan is. Superman effortlessly breaks his bonds and the death trap. But Dragorian points out that they still have Jimmy tied up. Superman tells them not to go there and leave the unconscious Jimmy out of all of this. Dragorian informs the man of tomorrow that Jimmy will die with the rest of them when the demon dog flies, a prophecy foretold to them in Donovan's projection. Superman reminds them that Donovan is just a man and they may still be able to stop his plan. Then a great sound of bells begin to ring. The monsters panic knowing that this is the beginning of their end. The demon dog is set to begin his flight of death. On his knees, as if begging for salvation, Gregorian foretells of how the demon dog's jaws will pour liquid fire upon the world, cleansing their planet of all life. 
Superman goes to work looking for a solution because Superman actually does shit here. With his super senses, he spots me mechanisms under the mausoleum floor and rips it up. He descends into a technologically advanced underground world. Bursting through a large set of doors, he is startled when the winged demon dog flies past him. The robot demon dog bursts through the crypt chamber doors and begins his orbital pass over Transylvania. His jaw drops open, revealing a series of jets that begin to emit genocide spray. But the Man of Steel is faster and makes one powerful chop to the dog's metal body. With that, Jimmy rushes to consciousness. He finds the crypt silent and empty and heads down into the subfloor Superman had uncovered. There he finds his powerful pal looking through a microscope-like apparatus. Jimmy looks inside to see a squadron of tiny flying coffins returning to planet Transylvania in something Dragorian called Reduction Transit. Superman and Jimmy examine the remnants of the destroyed demon dog. Packed with defoliant, it was Donovan's plan to wipe out these intelligent creatures he had created like bacteria. He even set up the prophecy to bring about their demise like any quote-unquote god would. But Jimmy wonders why did these creatures emulate the old horror movies so closely? Superman postulates their fluid atomic base makes them natural copiers. They simply became what they saw. Jimmy laments it's a shame that they were stuck as monsters, but Superman has already put a plan in motion. Rummaging through Donovan's film archive, he finds the one non-horror movie in the lot, and he feeds it through the planetary projectors. He and Jimmy douse the lights and sit down to take in the movie sure to change the citizens of Transylvania from monsters to cowboys. The classic musical, Oklahoma. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain, and the waving wheat can sure smell sweet when the wind comes right behind the rain. Oklahoma, every night, my honey lamb and Ah, yeah, Oklahoma. <laughs> So basically, the citizens of Transylvania are like the series on a piece of the action in Star Trek. Yes, and we'll get to that. Yes. Sorry. Uh, no, that's fine. Yes. <laughs> the like... Ioceans. Yes. Now, Kirby manages to get some digs in on free spending government and unregulated unre science gone wild, and even peppers in some conspiracy type thing for good measure right on the splash page. So, you know. Last issue, I do have to point this out. Last issue, Jimmy wore a green t shirt a blue collared jacket, and blue jeans. This issue, with no time gap in between, he suddenly has on a jacket that looks like a NASCAR driver and light blue gloves. However, <laughs> he was in a fight with the werewolf, so maybe there was just a suit there, you know, that he put on if it was torn. The lab suit? Yeah. Yeah, but they he come down to the crypt in the last issue in his regular jacket. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, yeah. sorry. No, it's okay. Fault. That's all right. Kirby's having fun with the credits on page five. On one of the coffins, he writes, In defiance of all the fears which have marked my human experience, I can't resist the gesture of placing our credits here. And they are right on the coffin, the credits I read earlier. So so we get a Frankenstein-like monster, which makes it much more Monster Rally-ish. Yeah. And he looks pretty much like what you expect. In fact, he looks quite a bit like Kirby's very early Hulk. Mm -hmm. um, last issue, Lupec had some very Kirby-type mechanical braces on his lower legs like Stompa like you pointed out uh, you know they were on his legs and over top his feet and this issue they are gone so, mm -hmm. but he could have taken those off I guess. well yeah at first I felt like Kirby was cheating a bit on page 8 having Jimmy and Superman just mention seeing the additional monsters in the flying coffins but not showing them 
I thought he was doing a, you know, let's do a show, don't tell, you know. But like any good horror movie, he's just building suspense, and he'll show them later. So now I know we're not covering the Newsboy Legion segment, much to your uh, you know, satisfaction. satisfaction. But last issue, the boys stumbled across the hideout of a gangster who claims to have killed their mentor, Jim Harper, a.k.a. The Guardian. He was clean-shaven and balding. Now, in this book, he's got a mustache and a head full of thick black hair. <laughs> oh, Kirby, you so crazy. So, <laughs> you know, he's got a hair people. Yeah, he went to hair club for men. Yeah, he's, he's not only a member, he's also a client. Uh, or president or whatever it is. Uh, now we get a female vampire and a very Karloff-like mummy, plus a hooded executioner and a few smaller panels. So Kirby didn't jip us on the monster rally, and they're actually all in the same room together. I know. So unlike, you know, House of Frankenstein. <laughs> so we soon learn that these guys aren't really bad, they're just trying to save their planet. Right. It's a nice twist, and it's similar to that Super Friends story we covered in the first House of Frankenstein series, where the monsters end up being heroes on a different yeah. world. Yeah. But it's kind of an odd sight to see Dracula and Frankenstein analogs on their knees begging for religious salvation. salvation. It's like, whoa. <laughs> and Frankenstein being able to talk. Yeah, well, you know. You know, intelligibly. Yeah, intelligibly, yeah. <laughs> Panel three on page 18 shows Superman running through a hallway full of Kirby tech. And you can't see his face, so no one redraws anything. Maybe the S on the back of his cape, I don't know. But other than that, it's pure Kirby, and I think it looks awesome. Mm -hmm. And that would be a really cool print on your wall. Oh, it would. (laughs) And the demon dog is another purely Kirby idea and design, but it it looks really cool. I mean, it it looks like something that ought to be like in a toy line, like... You know, like a superpowers toy. Cause, yeah, yeah. Because Kirby designed a lot of superpowers toys. But, like, it, like, launches out of something, you know. Mm-hmm. Darkseid's launched his demon dog. Can Superman stop it in time? You decide, you know, or something like that. Because <laughs> in all those superpower commercials, the answer is, yes, Superman will save the day. I mean, in every, I mean, but that was, you know. Yeah. Superman movies were still big. Mm-hmm. Christopher Reeve, you know, so. They are still big. No, oh, I know, but, I mean, they were big then, you know. I, know. I mean, that's. I'm just saying. Superman was the shit, so, you know. He still is the Christopher Reeve version. That's true. That's very true. Then we get the money shot of the coffins flying back to Transylvania. So. It seems like there's more coffins than there were monsters that were there. There's a bunch of them. Well, apparently there was more that we just didn't see. And now, and I hate to be this way, because I do think Vince Coletta is a good inker on Kirby normally. He inked him on Thor. And he inked quite a bit of his work in the new, uh, the, at DC. But Vince Coletta is, one, was known as one of the fastest inkers in the business. But he's also notorious for erasing a lot of background detail mm. to make him the fastest inker in the business. So Kirby may very well have drawn more monsters. Or, you know, a crowd, like a, you know, silhouettes of other figures that he just didn't ink and just erased. So it's very possible that that happened. There's one issue where a Thor, where in his erasing craziness, he erased someone's head. (laughs) And inked the rest of them, but erased his head. Oh, shoot. I can't think which issue, but yeah, it's so, I mean... And there's a book by Tomorrow's about Vince Coletta that I actually wouldn't mind having just to kind of, it's basically other artists commenting on it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, 
he was he was a, a romance comic artist before, uh-huh. and he's really good at, at illustrating women, and he drew a lot himself. But you know, he he inked the the uh, Spider Man wedding issue we did, uh-huh. which we were kind of the art was real, eh, you yeah. know. But he, he when he does the romance stuff, he's good at it. But he just he just he was a very capable artist, I think. And I think it shows in over Kirby a lot of times, but I'm still not wouldn't be surprised if he didn't erase some Something. stuff. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's Kirby was especially interested in religious myths and beliefs at this time. I mean, he did a lot of prints that had like like a godlike creature, very cosmic stuff, mm-hmm. you know, going on uh outside of comics. And of course he had a title named The New Gods. Uh, so having a scientist create his own people and religion and playing a vengeful god who will wipe them out is pretty heady stuff for a Superman comic in the early 70s. But, you know, Kirby makes it work as a, as a rollicking adventure, mm-hmm. too. So it, it works. It's wonky, but it works. And nothing against Oklahoma, but I'd rather just them stay monsters myself. You know? Yeah, I was in Oklahoma. Oh, what a beautiful morning! You know, for over and over, over and, and over. over. <laughs> At least it looks like you know Donovan had several movies going on along the time. Can you imagine the same movie? Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh! Now getting back to your Star Trek thing. Back Sorry. in Fantastic Four number ninety-one and ninety-three, Kirby plotted a story about a planet of gangsters. And if you listen to our friends Andrew Leyland and Stephen Lacey over at the Fantastic Cast when they covered these issues a while back, they will point out how this story seems to have been inspired by that classic Star Trek episode, A Piece of the Action. This story definitely has some similar ideas. Our heroes encounter an entire planet based on an aspect of Earth's popular culture. At the end, they provide the means for these very imitative creatures to change their ways and emulate something different. Is that a coincidence? Probably Probably not. not. Yeah. Most of Kirby's contributions to Superman were quickly swept under the rug once his initial fourth world titles were canceled and he left the Jimmy Olsen book, except for Morgan Edge. Who, Morgan Edge actually was originally, uh, Kirby fully intended him to be a bad guy working for Intergang. Mm. But then the other Superman editors and writers were using him as just, you know, Clark's somewhat unscrupulous but not evil new boss. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, oh, well, we don't want him to be an evil bad guy. So they came up with this whole clone storyline. And they snuck it in, like, I think Lois's book or something. So, I mean, they fixed it in Lois Lane. So it was like, you know, everybody was just real. There was a lot of, there was, wasn't, there was no synergy between the different, the different editors working on the you Superman used book. You a big word. I did. But, you know, the Earth One version of Transylvania was never touched on again, uh, although new versions did appear in the post-crisis Superman books in the Guardians of Metropolis miniseries, which had the Guardian, the Newsboy Legion, and a retelling of this story by Randy Lossifer and Jose Landron that appeared in an arc in Legends of the DC Universe in 1999. And I did not know any of this until I did this research today. I thought I had the Guardians of Metropolis series but if I do, I've totally forgotten about it and about uh, Dragorian being in there. Because I've had these books since, like, I think the late 80s. Yeah. I've had these, I uh, had a handful of Jimmy, Jack Kirby's Jimmy Olsen since then. I don't remember him ever coming back. So I'm definitely going to have to find that Legends of the DC Universe arc that that retells a new version of this story. Hmm. I, I like this. I think it's fun. You yeah. know, it, and it's, it's, it's. 
it is the like he says it's the vampire bit but like you've never seen it before well he's right yeah i mean and it and it's it's an interesting it's an interesting take on it and instead of biting him he uses his laser eyes that comes in the the super friends later when dracula has laser eyes that yeah. turn people into vampires but that's because they couldn't show him biting people on Saturday right. morning cartoons but uh yeah i i you know it's 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 you know it's typical Kirby imaginative craziness, but it's really it's well thought out. You know, the only one thing that's kind of eh, is Jimmy just jumping to that's the planet. That's the only weird thing. But I'm not the only weird thing. It's the only thing that doesn't really work. And you know, I do think it's interesting that Jimmy doesn't really do much in this issue. Mm-hmm. Superman. It's almost it's like Kirby like, well. I'm doing Jimmy's book, but I really want to play with Superman. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but I really enjoyed it, and I thought it was a fitting Monster Rally-type comic for, for this episode of The House of Frankenstein. So that'll do it for our first episode of House of Frankenstein this year. Now, next time, we're going to go from Universal to Hammer, uh-huh. and we're going to be talking about one of my particular favorite Hammer movies. So I'm kind of going ahead and spoiling that. But we're going to cover The Curse of the Werewolf, starring Oliver Reed. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll have a comic there, too, but we won't spoil that for you. So, see you then. Bye. Bye. Supermates is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises Worldwide. And is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright their respective holders. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied. So please don't sue my mommy and daddy. <laughs> Emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Comments can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook by searching for Supermates and FW Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter by using the hashtag FWPodcast. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. Now you kids get around. Cause in this house, there is something special going down. <laughs>